0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God.
1: Now let us prepare our hearts and minds for worship.
0: Good morning. My name is Paul Dimmick. I'm an elder currently serving on session here at First Pres. Please join me in the call to worship. Give thanks to the Lord, we call on God's holy name. Sing praises to the Lord and make God's wondrous deeds known to all people. Seek the Lord and his strength, call for God's presence at all times, come let us worship The first scripture text is from Jeremiah, chapter 15, can be found in your pew Bibles on page 674. Listen for and hear the word of God. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and bring down retribution for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, do not take me away. Know that on your account I suffer insult. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of merrymakers, nor did I rejoice under the weight of your hand. I sat alone, for you had filled me with indignation, Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Truly, you are to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fall. Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you turn back, I will take you back, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall serve as my mouth. It is they who will turn to you, not you who will turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Our second lesson comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. They can be found on page 17 in the New Testament of your Pew Bibles. Here again God's word to you and to me. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, and take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray together. O Lord, as the prophet Jeremiah prayed so long ago, we ask that you would remember and visit us, that your words would come to us and fill us and be our heart's joy and delight. Let us not utter anything worthless, but say what is precious and good in your sight. For you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning is shocking. Not just because Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him Satan, but because he does that just after Peter has confessed that Jesus is Lord and Jesus has declared that Peter will be the rock on which he will build his church. This section of Matthew's gospel that I read a few minutes ago comes immediately after the text we read last week, You all remember this scene. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, some people say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or a prophet. And Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? Peter, the beloved disciple, is ready with an answer. I sometimes think of Peter as that student in school, maybe it was one of you, I think maybe it was me, who raises his hand so high and so enthusiastically that he can't even stay in his seat. You can almost hear Peter saying, I know, I know this, call on me. Peter, so eager, so assured, proclaims confidently to his teacher, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter gives the right answer, and he makes a confession of faith, and he gets more reward than any student could ever have hoped for. Jesus says to him, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This must have been like getting an A-plus in faith for Peter. Affirmation, a promise that not only was he right, but he would be the foundation of the church, Christ's body on earth, and nothing, not even death, would prevail against it. Peter would have the keys of the kingdom and maybe a cupcake, apparently. He would have authority and power and influence. So we can imagine that today's text, which picks up at the very next verse, came as a shock. Here's Peter gearing up to be the rock. But instead of planning together the next move toward the kingdom, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his death. He tells them for the first of four times in Matthew's gospel that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo suffering and be killed and on the third day be raised. So that is the rest of the story. Peter was right about who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. But the Messiah, the Son of the living God, will suffer and die. That isn't what Peter or anyone else was expecting. From any Messiah, especially Jesus the Christ, they thought he would have power and that he would use it to overthrow the oppressive powers of the Roman Empire They didn't expect that he would have a three-year ministry on earth and be crucified. Peter must have been confused and concerned and was probably saying what everyone was thinking when he took Jesus aside and, according to Matthew, rebuked his Lord. God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. Who knows how many layers of meaning and emotion are in this moment God forbid it, Lord, I don't want you to suffer. God forbid it, Lord, surely you don't mean actual death. God forbid it, Lord, we can keep that from happening. God forbid it, Lord, you're the Messiah, the one sent for the world, son of the living God, an omnipotent God. You have the power to stop this. God forbid it, Lord, these aren't appropriate things for up-and-coming church leaders to be saying. God forbid it, Lord, we're just getting started, and this isn't part of the plans we're making for that church you just told me about. What about us? What about me? Maybe Peter was trying to be discreet because he took Jesus aside from the group. Maybe he was trying to protect his Lord from a painful death that he thought was coming too soon. But whatever Peter's purposes, he's placed himself in a position of authority. He stepped out in front, and Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Suddenly, the rock has become a stumbling block. The one who claimed his position as a disciple is not following in faith, but is trying to change Jesus' course Peter, who was so eager to answer the question of who Jesus is, has now missed the very point of who Jesus is. For Jesus is the Messiah, but that means going to the cross. Peter is wrapped up in human things, and he's lost sight of Jesus's divine purpose of reconciling the world to God. Peter's answer now is wrong so wrong that it's the same to Jesus as a temptation of Satan. In fact, it echoes Satan's temptations of Jesus from the wilderness when Satan tried to convince Jesus to use his own power for his own benefit to avoid this suffering and death. So when Peter suggests that death might not have to be Jesus' fate, Jesus is thrown again into that moment of temptation not to follow through with the plan to suffer and die and be raised. Jesus is tempted to use his own power, and he resists that temptation by lashing out at Peter with some force that shocks us when we hear it. Get behind me, says Jesus, follow Put away your human things, your plans, your expectations, your concern with having influence and power. Those are not God's plans or expectations. And the son of the living God will save the world not by claiming power for himself, but by giving up his own life. And if Peter, the A student eager disciple, wasn't already reeling from Jesus's harsh words, Surely he faltered at what our Lord had to say next. Not only does the life of the Messiah lead to the cross, but his followers will have to give up their lives too. Jesus said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, read, give up their preoccupation with themselves, and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose lose their life for my sake will find it. Being a disciple doesn't just mean worshiping a Lord who suffered death. It doesn't just mean proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah. It means taking up a cross, denying ourselves, giving up our lives so that we might live for others. Now, there's a reason it took the disciples so many lessons to understand this. The contradiction of power perfected in weakness was hard for those followers, just as it's hard for us to understand today. How could the glory of God's kingdom be delivered in weakness? How could God's plan include allowing the powers of the Roman Empire to try and convict and execute the Son of God. Isn't that foolishness? Isn't that a waste? When Peter and his company could go about the business of impressing people and winning them over, they could be out showing people just how powerful Jesus was, how he could heal and do miracles, how he could leave the scribes and the Pharisees scratching their heads and tongue-tied, Wouldn't that be better than following a path that led to death? Now, some people in our world today will actually die because of their faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but because of our time and our context here, probably not anyone who's worshiping together this morning. And I feel confident that none of us will have to endure the horror of death on a cross So what does this mean for us in this time and in this community to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses? There's so much of human limitation and divine mystery wrapped up in this exchange between Peter and Jesus. But as I've been rereading it this week, I've been struck by this scene as a negotiation about power, Power. The dictionary definition of power is the capacity or ability to, to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. It's woven throughout this conversation. Jesus seems to have promised Peter a certain amount of power, status as the rock on which the church will be built. Peter has claimed power, has elevated his own status asserting himself while Jesus is trying to teach his disciples what faith will require of them. Jesus has been tempted to use power and has denied that that temptation will hold him. And he's made this confusing statement that the Son of Man will suffer and die, but will also come with his angels in the glory of his Father. In other words, Jesus has revealed a plan to give up power but has also promised glory. He's made it clear that following him will mean not giving power to what we want, but committing our lives to the witness of this Messiah. He's made it clear that our minds should not be set on human things, and wanting power is a very human thing. It's almost cliche, to say that our culture and our economy value power, comes in so many forms. There are obvious kinds like winning wars or using military force. There's the power that comes with having prestige and resources, the power that gives you a voice in a conversation or a seat at so many tables. There's the kind of power that comes from holding a position like being respected, given authority because of an office. There's power in our status, race, gender, geography, in the credentials we have, in the company we keep, in the images we create about ourselves, in the neighborhoods we live in, in the car we drive, in the school we went to, the list could go on and on. There's power in things we cannot change and in things we can. And there are so many kinds of power that are less obvious, less explicit. There's influence we have when we use our ability to speak or to be silent. There's the power or lack of power we have when we relate to others. Power is all around us. It's part of our daily lives, whether we have it or not, and whether we've pursued it or not. And the reality of human life is that most of us have pursued it. Most of us have wanted power, and when we have it, we've used it for ourselves. Because that's the thing about power. When we have it, we want more. We want to have influence. We want to feel respected. So we do whatever it takes to keep our positions. We can see all around us what it looks like when people use power in self-centered ways. We see when public figures use their platforms to promote themselves. We see what happens when decision-makers preserve their positions rather than taking a stand against injustice. We see that a strong image is more important to our culture than risking the vulnerability that comes with telling the truth We know that it's easier to stay in our own circles where people are more or less on the same playing field and not face the discomfort of any power disparity. We're surrounded by a culture that prioritizes power so we can understand Peter's shock at the news that Jesus would follow a divine plan into weakness and death. None of us wants to be weak, or to belong to a weak church, or to be citizens of a weak country, or to raise weak children. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we also know from some experience, somewhere along the line, maybe once, maybe a few times, maybe every single day, what it feels like to be weak or vulnerable. And that is where we start to understand the power and the scandal of the cross, that Jesus chose weakness, gave up his earthly power in order to conquer death. A life as followers of Jesus Christ means denying ourselves, giving up our earthly power too. But this isn't a gloomy forecast for a downer of a life. That was supposed to be funny. You can smile at that. (laughs) I know it's hot. <laughs> Taking up our crosses also means confessing a different kind of power, the power Christ holds over death forever. Taking up our crosses frees us from a life of having to fear death and weakness. Taking up our crosses frees us from ourselves so that we can live for others It means not seeking attention, but seeking mutual relationships. It means valuing sacrifice over image or credit. It means living in gratitude for what Christ has done. It means that we give our lives in love, because in Christ we have gained life itself. Following Christ means that we will know weakness and vulnerability, and that if we have power and influence in this world, we'll use them to share light with those who do not have power and influence in this world. And not just us, each of us, but the church, too. The church, capital C, church, not just this congregation we're in this morning. The church, capital C, often falls into the temptation of measuring its own faith with metrics that are based on power. Number of members, number of worshipers, those are not always the same. Budgets, giving, reach into the world, influence over people's thoughts and opinions. That's why shifts in membership and declining numbers have been reported so often as a crisis for the church. Why there are outcries about whether or not the church is dying But this panic, all this concern about whether the church will attract enough new people, whether it will survive and thrive, it's preoccupation with human things. It is not the church's call to promote the church. It is the church's call to promote the gospel. It is the church's call to stand as Jesus Christ did with the weak and the powerless and the poor to follow that unexpected path toward the cross, a path that wasn't concerned about power, but only about the divine purpose of reconciliation. A few weeks ago, a group of women from this congregation, some were here this morning, gathered at Montreat, the Presbyterian Conference Center in the North Carolina Mountains, to participate in their annual women's conference. The keynote speaker that weekend was Rachel Held Evans. She's a Christian writer and blogger and speaker and and sharer of her own winding path of faith. Rachel, in her address, spoke about this dynamic of the church being obsessed with maintaining its own status. And she writes this in her book, Searching for Sunday, death is not something resurrection people worry about. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it has a God who knows the way out of the grave. Rachel goes on, As Christians in the United States are forced to gauge the success of the church by something other than money and power, I hope it looks like altars transforming into tables, gates transforming into open doors, a kingdom that belongs not to the rich but to the poor, not to the triumphant or the powerful but to the meek, not to the culture warriors but to the peacemakers. Where are we this morning, friends? What power do we hold? What status are we preserving? Will we choose, because it is a choice after all, to follow Jesus Christ, knowing that confessing Christ as Lord means denying ourselves and living for others as negotiations for power swirl around us in the world and in ourselves, may we choose to live as witnesses to the love of a Lord who chose to die for the weak, for the vulnerable, for us. Amen. Friends, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Let us go from this place with the courage to take up our crosses and to choose lives lived for others in the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that as we go, Christ's own grace and peace go with us. Amen.